Hello, everyone, and welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics into conversation. On this episode, we are going to be looking at a couple of hell-based comics. Um, we are going to be looking at the Dangerous Habits arc of Hellblazer by Garth Ennis with art by Will Simpson. And we are going to be looking at Hellboy Wake the Devil by Mike Mignola, who also does the lovely art of his series with colors by Dave Stewart. We are also going to have a review of an academic text, as we always do. This week, it's going to be Hellboy's World by Scott Bucatman. So I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University, and I'm going to be hosting and moderating this month's episode. And I am joined, as always, by... Dr. Michael Hancock. I'm an instructor at the English Department at the University of Waterloo. And? I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm an instructor also in the English Department at the University of Waterloo on the St. Jerome's campus. Thank you, guys. And as once again, as always, we would like to thank the Games Institute for the use of their facilities and equipment. So before we get going on our discussion, we're going to have a brief introduction, as we usually do, to each of our texts. And we're going to start with Andrew introducing Hellblazer. Thank you. So what we're covering today is um, pretty early days in the Hellblazer run. Um, this is actually Garth Ennis's first story arc on Hellblazer. Uh, and actually Garth Ennis's first introduction to an American comics audience. This was the first thing that he, he did from a mainstream American publisher. The arc we're covering is called Dangerous Habits. It spawns from Hellblazer issues 41 to 46, as mentioned earlier, with art by Will Simpson. Uh, the plot is um, kind of cool as a concept. The idea is that in this story, as we're told on page one, John Constantine is dying. He has lung cancer, a somewhat predictable effect from the chain smoking that has become such an iconic element of the character. Uh, and the story revolves around him searching for, uh, at first, kind of a, a way out of it, uh, and then ultimately things like acceptance and atonement to various degrees. Uh, and then um, a really ambitious and entertaining deal with not the devil, but the devils uh, in order to keep this character alive and fighting in DC and Vertigo comics for years and years to come. Uh, this is considered one of the great arcs uh, in the history of John Constantine Hellblazer uh, as a character, routinely topping lists on that subject, and was in fact the um, basis for the plot of the 2005 movie Constantine, uh, in which Keanu Reeves portrayed John Constantine somewhat improbably as a choice for an actor for that particular role. But uh, I will go to the bat for this film. I, I, I think it was a good film. I quite liked it. And in many ways, it was a good adaptation of Dangerous Habits. Uh, this is all based around the character John Constantine, who, as many know, uh, was created in 1984 in the pages of Swamp Thing at the hands of legendary comics writer Alan Moore. He is a character who is um, based also very famously um, visually on Sting, the musician from The Police. Alan Moore has flat out said that the only reason John Constantine exists as a character uh, is because the illustrators Steve Bissett and John Tottlebaum really wanted to draw Sting uh, and Moore had to think, who would Sting be in a comic book? And the answer is John Constantine. So I said, this is a definitive story in the arc of a really enduring anti-hero in comics history. This is a character who um, has come up very high in two very prominent polls on comics characters. The 2008 Wizard Comics poll on the top 200 comic book characters lists John Constantine as the 10th greatest comic book character in the history of comics. I should point out in deference to Michael, though, that Hellboy is number eight. Uh, however... Constantine is there listed ahead of Wonder Woman, Morpheus, Hulk, 
Flash, Iron Man, Spider-Jerusalem, and The Punisher. Uh, and then more recently, IGN did a very similar survey, the top 100 comic book characters, in which John Constantine came in 29th spot. Hellboy, again, a little higher at 25. Um, so as I said, we're talking today about the, I would argue, definitive arc uh, of not just Garth Ennis's run on John Constantine, but, but on John Constantine as a character, a character much, much beloved within our culture. And again, a really prominent and visible example of an anti-hero in comics, an important evolution in the form uh, going through the 1980s and 1990s. And now we are going to have Michael introduce us to Hellboy. Hellboy is the work of Mike Manola, along with a number of creators, uh, both on the writing and art sides of things over the years. The general premise is that during World War II, a resurrected Gregory Rasputin is contracted by the Nazis to create a superweapon, and the resulting ritual summons an infant demon who is found and raised by a joint British and American team. Despite his demonic appearance and inhuman strength and durability, Hellboy grows up with a very human personality and eventually becomes a full-fledged member of the group resulting out of that encounter and others, BPRD, the Bureau for Paranormal Research and De Defense. BPRD's mission is to act as a global paranormal investigating team, combating occult threats, which get increasingly more difficult as the series progresses. The first major arc of Hellboy was Seeds of Destruction, scripted by longtime comics writer John Byrne, published in 1994. It establishes Hellboy, BPRD, and longtime cast members such as Liz Sherman, a woman with superhuman control over fire, and Abe Sapien, an amphibious fishman. It also introduces an early foe of the series, the aforementioned Rasputin, who is working with a tentacled monster called Saduhem in order to bring about Ragnarok with Hellboy's aid and free the slumbering Ogdru Jahad, the seven beasts who make up the Dragon of Revelation so they can destroy the world. Hellboy declines the offer. This movement sets up the major pattern of the series, at least in the beginning. Monstrous otherworldly beings attempt to cause great destruction, call upon Hellboy to take up his demonic heritage and join them. Hellboy declines and furthers the declination with the witticism and punching. Sometimes we just skip straight to the witticism and punching. And while my incredibly reductive description of this series isn't wrong, it misses so much of what makes Hellboy worth reading, worth experiencing as a comic. Manola constructs what becomes an incredibly dense mythology, fusing together global folklore, Lovecraftian monsters, divine struggles, and pulp fiction detective into a cohesive whole that has created a small comic book empire spanning 25 years and including multimedia expansions into film, animation, novels, and video games. Manola is a master of the comic book form, deploring a style and aesthetic for Hellboy that gives his world at large a distinct feel, even in the hands of other artists. There's a world weariness to Hellboy, a fundamental skepticism and yet optimism when he stands against forces that claim to be beyond our comprehension, and defiance that speaks to what we may hope to do in the same circumstances if we were able. Also, there's witticisms and punching. <laughs> to steer back to the work at hand after this initial arc, there's a handful of minor Hellboy stories in which Hellboy faces off against other supernatural battery or baddies, including priest-murdering werewolves and baby-thieving fairies. Our focus is on the next major arc, published in 1996, the five-issue storyline Wake the Devil. Here, Hellboy and BPRD face off once again against a now spirit Rasputin and his Nazi lackeys with the flashpoint of a potential vampire resurrection. What follows is a series of fantastic encounters as Hellboy takes on all comers. A steampunk Nazi, the bird women witches of Thessaly, a snake woman Lamia, 
a vampire cavalry man, and a living Iron Maiden. And in a wonderful moment of bathos and farce, Rasputin is not done in by Hellboy himself, but by an underling blindly hitting their base's self-destruct button. And again, that description doesn't do the book justice. This is a story with an extreme blend of different stories, with ancient Greek mythology, vampires, and Nazi super sciences that never loses its core appeal, Bignola's unique style, and Hellboy's perseverance against beings who want to fill that, who want him to fulfill a role that they have assigned. To paraphrase the old saying, with Hellboy, it's not the destination, but the monsters he punches along the way. Thank you so much for those fabulous intros. Um, I thought, in deference to the fact that a couple of episodes ago we did a pod about Tomb of Dracula and American Vampire, our special Halloween theme pod, check it out, um, that we might go back to some of the ideas we brought up there, which was having to do with the history of horror in comics and how horror is represented in comics. It has a very long and controversial history in comics. It's connected to the comics code and, and all of that. If you want to hear more about that history, check out that Tomb of Dracula episode. But I thought we'd start off by talking about, do these two comics, Hellboy and Hellblazer, fit into a horror tradition? Are these horror comics? Are these not? Are these something a little bit different? I think horror is very overtly a genre that Hellboy engages with, that mm -hmm. the entire plot of Rasputin trying to bring in Lovecraftian monsters yeah. clearly has some very direct horror tropes. It also calls on various monstrosities. Uh, the first arc is about people transforming into frogmen. That is a, a very horrific transformation. Then we have werewolves, which are also closely associated, vampires. But I don't think it's primer. Well, this, this changes as the series goes on, as BPRD goes on in particular. But I would still somehow say its primary engagement isn't horror. Okay. Mm -hmm. That it's not just horror, at least. That it's occult adventure, almost. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that a genre? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm always trying to think about whether Hellboy is a superhero comic or not, mm -hmm. because I think it's kind of hard to decide. I mean, you could take Hellboy, put him in a superhero comic. He wouldn't have to change his behavior. Mm -hmm. He would still go in against some, I don't know, the Beyonder or something and punch him. That would be what Hellboy does in that situation. But yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that, I mean, is the horror just set dressing Hellboy then? I mean, certainly it's got a lot of visual references as well. I mean, we're gonna you're going to review Scott mm -hmm. Bukeman's book later, but he talks about things like Francisco Goya and like the influence that he has on Mignola's work, which, you know, is like an older, you know, <laughs> horror influence reference, but... I think defiance of horror comes up again and again as a theme. But, okay. I mean, BPRD, that's the main three powered members of BPRD, Hellboy, uh, Liz, and Abe, are all these characters that could become monstrous, mm -hmm. but continually reject it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very, that is, I mean, monstrosity is a very much a horror focus, and that they keep rejecting the label of monster, I think mm -hmm. is significant. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I wonder, I'm sh this might lead us directly into a conversation about the anti-hero nature of our two main protagonists in these series, but... Would you say that you see a shift in Hellboy between perhaps what makes it not sort of consistent with the horror genre is that the monsters are the heroes? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, well, it's, it's completed time, a transition. Also, there are monsters yeah. are this is true. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So there's monsters that are more monstrous that are still. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, in that sense, again, not that dissimilar from the superhero genre I mean, in which the Hulk and the Thing are also heroes. If we want to go into, if we want to shift into the anti hero discussion, 
I would argue Hellboy is not an anti-hero. Oh, or a definitive okay. Anti-hero. I would yeah. agree. Yeah, I would, but I would actually probably agree too. It probably makes it not that interesting. Is, I think the really interesting thing are the contrast between them, that they are very similar characters, but one of them, even though he is the monstrous looking one, is an anti-hero in a way Constantine, or is not an anti-hero. And Constantine... Well, I'll, I'll let you take that. Yeah, let's talk about Constantine. Let's talk about Hellblazer and Constantine now. And is this a horror comic? Why or why not? See, I think I think the best way to describe Hellblazer is um, um, it's often on um, descriptions of it is as an occult detective story. Okay. Uh, so it has that same sort of a, a occult aspect that Hellboy has. Um, nothing remotely superheroish in it. Uh, even though Constantine has frequently been paired off with superheroes mm-hmm. as part of a team dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, it, it reads as um, um, he stands out, the, the person who doesn't kind of belong, that sort of ends up being his function within the group dynamic. So I, I think we're in a more traditional kind of um, almost Sherlock Holmesy genre, yeah. uh, the way that people yeah. kind of misremember that Doyle was, was very interested in, in sort of yeah. occult detective stories. And that fits in a different way for Hellboy that... I would say his detective connection, I mean, he's similarly investigating things. I would say he is a little less the Sherlock Holmes and a little more of a pulp detective, the guy who goes in and swings his fists until the answers come. Yeah, the noir element. Yeah, and I think that that's really clear. Hellboy is, um, for me, I don't know if you agree with this, Michael, to me it seems like the the character dynamic with Hellboy is he's always in over his head, but he Mm -hmm. goes, okay. Whereas Constantine is always on top of things he knows what has to be done he can literally take on the devil in an intellectual contest and win yeah i mean he's certainly a much more vocal and talky character than Hellboy yes. is. Oh, this, this particular volume is so talky yeah like and contemplative i mean yeah. he's thinking about his death you can't blame him I mean, but man and yes if, if you if you take up the text boxes there's not a lot that happens in this oh we can <laughs> summarize this real quick Whereas Hellboy's dialogue is often limited to things like, I mean, sometimes he does his own sound effects. Sometimes mm-hmm. he says boom yes, when he punches someone, which is incredibly <laughs> charming. But he's, he's, he's not a talky character. But that also puts him kind of in the pulp tradition, too, where, yeah, yeah. I mean, as much as Hellboy is typically the point of view character, um, a lot of the, the character building and um, um, narrative exposition unfolds through characters around him yeah. talking. So and, he's yeah. sort of a spectacle. Yeah. It's worth noting that since we're looking at a very early Hellboy story, that this is a shift that happened, that the mm-hmm. original version was a little closer to the talk here. I think that, that that's maybe some of the burn influence as the scripter comes Sure, out. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so just to be clear, so John Byrne, who's, you know, a well-known comic book artist and writer, um, is credited as a co-writer, I believe, on the first volume yeah. of, of Hellboy. But uh, Mike McGinola wrote subsequent volumes, and then yeah. other other writers and artists have worked on tie-ins and spin-offs from the Hellboy universe, including the long-running BPRD series. Yeah, and um, maybe speaking to that as well, just Mignola's art is so distinctive and so uh, amazing. It, it, it's almost profane to put too many text bubbles on it. This is true, and we're definitely mm-hmm. going to talk about his art a little bit more. I want to stick with the horror theme just briefly for a little bit longer, mm-hmm. though. In terms of this relationship to sort of the visuals or the graphics of the horror genre, mm-hmm. I mean, are we getting sort of a little bit closer to these fitting into that genre from from that perspective? I mean, Hellblazer certainly has some horrific imagery even within this arc, sort of less so than some of the surrounding arcs, because this one's a little bit more character-focused. And, uh, I, but... would, uh, and I would argue that you are absolutely right that... Uh... Hellboy has the same that mm-hmm. we've got like 
this ghoul eating a Nazi arm at one point. Yes. Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, that might be a point of differentiation from the mainstream superhero genre, sort of the <laughs> nature of some of that imagery. I mean, the main superhero comics have gotten more and more that way since, you know, the grim and gritty 1980s. But at the same yeah, yeah. time, I think Hellboy does stand out to me as being a little bit outside of that through some of its, well, through the individual nature of its artwork, which we're going to talk about, but... Um. Uh, another example of the way uh, Hellboy embraces the aesthetic of horror, I think the moment where Elsa uh, steps into the Iron Maiden and we just see the blood dripping out of it. It's just, it, it's always vivid whenever red appears because that's Hellboy, but when blood appears as well, it's such a contrast and we don't see it. I mean, that's part of what an Iron Maiden is, but we it's almost stronger for that. And we talked a little bit again, with Tomb of Dracula in terms of horror being sort of a very expressionistic kind of mode of representation. And we talked a little bit about Gene Colan's artwork in, in that context, and certainly Mignola's artwork. I mean, you know, Dave Stewart does some, as always, wonderful colors on the, the Hellboy series, but we have a lot of kind of muted tones, lots mm-hmm. and lots of black. It's a very mm-hmm. expressionistic, again, style with, again, those pops of red, which are both Hellboy and blood yeah. throughout the comic. And I mean, does that contribute to kind of the horror atmosphere, you would say? I would say so, yeah. Yeah. So what about Hellblazer? What about, because we have, again, I was saying we have a lot of graphic imagery sort of in this comic, but how would you sort of differentiate it from some of the things that we saw in American Vampire or Tomb of Dracula or other examples of the horror genre? Does it fit? Is it different? I think American Vampire is maybe a good point of comparison, just in the way that the art in Hellblazer, and to some extent the story as well, likes to revel in excess. Mm. Uh, and vulgarity. I, I think that comes down to certain um, issues with regards to its publication and, and maybe editorial. This is um, DC, later Vertigo, mm-hmm. uh, trying to distinguish itself as, look how adult this is. Yeah. So um, a lot of times in Hellblazer... Which seems very juvenile in retrospect. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> especially, yeah. The analogy I've used is that sometimes reading, especially early Ennis in Hellblazer, it feels like um, reading the work of a teenager who's just learned what swear words are. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it, it has that kind of look what I can do, look what yes, I can do element to it. read the Alan Moore and the Delano stuff. I'm like, yeah. I, I can do this too. I yeah. swore more than when I was 12. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I want to be I want to be gross and I want to show a lot of blood and vomit and stuff like that. I think a nice comparison, even cinematically, with Hellblazer is, is maybe like The Exorcist. Okay, yeah. Because he is kind of The Exorcist yeah. in a lot of ways outside of that um, I mean, exact religious paradigm. Sometimes it, it feels like there's a lot of pea soup vomit happening metaphorically uh, in this text. Well, you brought up sort of the history of comics and where these both fit in. I mean, to what extent is some of the gratuitous imagery, even just the nature of the kind of stories that we have on display here, a reaction to the changing comic book industry? Sort of a reaction... In American comics, anything new is often a direct reaction against the superhero genre, since that mm-hmm. was the dominant genre at that time, and in a lot of ways, in terms of media exposure anyway, continues to be. So how would you say, I mean, how does Hellblazer react against the superhero genre? Does it? Is that part of its context? Or is it more in a tradition of, of well, I mean, horror comics, detective comics? I mean, what do you think? Are we still talking visually, or do you mean narrative? Either. It could be either. Well, I think, um, no, I think it actually does line up nicely with um, the narrative and the visual. I think the idea of Hellblazer, which is perfectly exemplified in the climax of this arc, uh, is he doesn't have 
very obvious superpowers. He's got some slight magical ability, um, but he, he basically has like super cheekiness. Yeah, and that, that, that's sort of what gets mm-hmm. him by. Uh, he just he doesn't give up. He'll he'll attempt anything, things that he shouldn't attempt, uh, and that's what makes him heroic. Which is in direct contrast to, of course, mainstream superheroes in most eras, yeah. uh, where it's all about um, their humility and perseverance is what's going to get them by. Mm-hmm. Although this is also the '90s, where the age of the anti-hero. Yeah, we're definitely setting foot in there. And this has worked on very iconic anti-heroes, mm-hmm. most, most notably yes, Hellblazer he, and Punisher. Yeah, he will go on to basically build a career out of uh, denigrating superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> well, where do you see kind of Hellboy's place in that history of, I mean, comics were changing a great deal during this year, right? I mean, the 90s was when we saw some of the first, well, not some of the first, but some of the first academic books about comic books that are still getting referenced often. Mm-hmm. It saw, you know, the publication of both volumes of Mouse and the tremendous effect that that had mm-hmm. on the culture and people's embrace of comics as a serious, quote-unquote, medium. Yeah, and I mean, the mainstream media as well, too. Exactly. We were starting yeah. to talk about it. Exactly. I mean, do you see Hellboy as fitting into that into that tradition? I mean, this is a writer-creator comic. Mm-hmm. It's done in this, we keep saying, very individual style, which we'll have to break down at some point. Well, I don't, I don't want to dip too much into the, the Catman review yet, mm-hmm. but I think one of the... I think the great thing about Hellboy is that yes and no. It is also an embrace of kind of juvenile weirdness. I mean, the volume that I had that contained this comic also had a story where Hellboy fights Nazi gorillas. Oh, yes, I've I've, I've read that. (laughs) And I think one of the fun things about Hellboy in general is that it's almost a gonzo style where he's created this world where anything could happen Mm -hmm. and it totally fits. The other good thing about that is that it can cast a much wider net of influence than just superhero comics. Yeah. That you can do something that does bring in these Lovecrafts, that brings in these other realms of mythology, that all of this is background you can tie in and build from. Yeah, it's, it's a really rich world. And the mythology that he draws from is, is I mean, so expansive. The An interesting comparison with Hellblazer in this regard is that if this is juvenile, it's closer to... Unlike Hellboy, Hellboy is like male teen juvenile, mm. and this is almost an all ages juvenile. It's it's too dark. <laughs> I would not recommend this for kids, but yeah. it is a lot closer to that than Constantine is. Right. Well, would you say that? Because I think both texts are sort of nostalgic mm. as much as they're sort of breaking yes. bound, boundaries. I mean, Hellboy is intensely nostalgic. I mean, nostalgic for things older than the writer himself, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, things like. H.P. Lovecraft, things like... And the pulp adventure superhero, yeah. rather than, or the pulp adventure hero, yeah. rather than the superhero. Yeah, and I mean, that's sort of a dead tradition, a dead genre, much mm-hmm. like many of the monsters are supposed to fulfill certain destinies. Yeah, they yeah I think creatures out of time. I, I know this the series isn't always like this, but the fact that so much of Hellboy's early, what we see of him here, is spent exploring ruins. Yes. Like, this is, we are, yeah. we are, this is the age of people, and these great beings are the past. Well, in fantasy, they talk about that in terms of time abyss, mm. uh, which is a very kind of cosmic horror, again, element where you just come encounter with something that is very ancient and old. And I can see both our books are, are mm-hmm. clearly drawing on that. I, I think uh, Hellblazer is drawing more specifically from sort of um, Renaissance occult. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the the pantheon of demons that we see uh, at the end of this is... You know, Although there's something very, like, folklore feel to the um this the whole sequence or the the middle part with uh the blessed beer 
Yeah, yeah. No, I can see that too. I mean, that um, could almost be a Hellboy story. Well, we have a cultural yeah. difference between these two texts too, right? I mean, <laughs> Hellblazer is intensely British. It, it is so British. And yeah. Hellboy, I would, I mean, Hellboy almost... has diverse influences. I would argue <laughs> yeah. it's intensely American. Yeah. In, in... I mean, Hellblazer is almost like, okay, we hired a bunch of British writers. First they do this title, then they go do something else. Yeah, it's, mm. it's man, again, I, I don't want to harp on this. I'm, I'm not attacking this book. This is a good book. I, I admire a lot of its juvenile qualities. Uh, but if you asked, if, I, th- I think Annie made this comparison before the pod, if you asked a, like a 13-year-old American teenager what a British person is, <laughs> it might be Hellblazer. Like, yeah. it, it's so over the top. And it's so Garth Ennis. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've said this uh, when we were preparing previously, but maybe his most prominent work at the moment is Preacher because it's got an actual TV series. Right. I guess there's a Constantine TV series too, but he's less associated with. It feels a lot like Preacher is, well, what if we took Constantine and made him American? Yeah. Mm. It's the same sort of outrageousness, but like it's Jesse Custer, the cowboy. Mm-hmm. As like a very open-ended wrap-up of this portion of our discussion, I just wanted to sort of observe. This is a question comment, which we always hate receiving at conferences, so <laughs> I'll do it here. But it's like both texts have a kind of juvenileness, right? But it's such a different... It's hard to tell which one is more juvenile or more sophisticated because it's taking such a different angle, right? I mean, they're well, both nostalgic. One's both, ironic, though. To me, yeah. that's the distinction. Hellboy is aware yeah. Uh, of its juvenile qualities. Oh, and you would say Hellblazer is not. I, I think it's an extreme of it. I, oh, I don't think okay. it does have a layer of irony to it. I think it's... I mean, I, I bent what I said when I described Hellboy as skepticism and optimism. This is not optim. Hellblazer is not optimism. <laughs> no. And yet he defeats the devil at the yeah. end of it. Yeah, so. but... He beats cancer, man. <laughs> anyway, I just it's an interesting comparison, you know, the one being so talky and so deliberately mm-hmm. self-reflective and the other one being more self-reflective in its kind of style, in its kind of milieu, in its incorporation of multiple sources, making a very sophisticated thing out of what seems to be a very simple thing of a devil guy punching monsters. So I know we already brought up the anti-heroes word earlier with all of us kind of agreeing that we don't think Hellboy is an anti-hero. So this discussion might go nowhere, but we can at least unpack a little bit about why we don't think he's an anti-hero. But are we in agreement that John Constantine is an anti-hero? I, I think he's textbook think, anti-hero. Yes. If you're going like, <laughs> to explain what an anti-hero is, I might start with Constantine. So why is Constantine words. an anti-hero? This is what an anti-hero is. This is what a British person is. <laughs> just kind of go for Are it. we putting that equation? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> um, okay, so the traditional definition of anti-hero, um, which is believed to come out in the 1950s, I'm drawing from Walter Ong here, um, who's a pretty good source on heroism across cultural um, chronologies, uh, is a hero who is lesser than you. It doesn't have to be morality, though it usually is, uh, especially in comics. It can be, you know, they can be weaker, they can be stupider. Um, Hellblazer is on a lower moral scale than most human beings, at least in his sort of day-to-day interactions. Um, he is a jerk, for, for lack of a better <laughs> term. He seems to have some good intentions here and there. I mean, he he saves his friend's soul uh, at the risk of his own by pissing off the devil in this arc in what is kind of a really cool human moment. But at the same time, it's also the story of someone who might be sort of in that um, um, late stage of life, getting right with God kind of metaphor. Uh, So his actions might not be um, representative of who he is typically uh, amidst all these bridges that he's burned previously. We are certainly told 
over and over again, mostly by Constantine, Absolutely. that he is a selfish bastard. Yep. Yeah, it's there. And, and I, mean, it, I mean, it is there also in the way he says goodbye to his family and friends, that even while he's doing that, he can't yeah. help sniping at them. Yeah. And I do love the scene where um, he, he wants to say goodbye to somebody and he just can't. So he has to write them a letter. He, he doesn't have this sort of like like stand-up guy kind is, of aspect to him. Which is very much Garth Ennis, like, oh, blokes are blokes are strong and like we don't talk about our feelings kind of approach. Yeah, but at the same time, I, I think one of the interesting things about most anti-heroes in literature, things like, like Holden Caulfield and that, is that depiction of an interior existence. Mm-hmm. And I think we get a ton of that here. Yeah. As, as much as we're complaining about the, the overwriting, there's a really good psychological study mm-hmm. unfolding at the same time with some good foil characters I mean, to in, draw it out. In terms of the psychological study, I would love to get the opinion of a scholar who specializes in illness narratives to take yeah. a look at this. It gets so mad at the ending, though. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so I mean, mad. I, I think one main major difference that if Garth Ennis had written this now is that we would probably get a scene where uh, Constantine confesses to the soldier dying of cancer, and he, like, cusses him out. What, you just magicked away your cancer? You asshole. Yeah. I'm literally dying from it here. Yeah, why well, didn't I mean, you make a deal for how do we do, how, Well, in terms of that cancer storyline, I mean, you brought up that definition of the hero, hero of the anti-hero, rather, a hero who is lesser than you. Does this cancer arc fit into that? I mean, I mean he, it's, it's it is a, a purely selfish motive. He just wants to save himself. That's right. But I mean, also in terms of it presenting a hero who is damaged, who is not invulnerable, who yeah. is not super heroic, although we'd already had a very iconic superhero cancer story Captain in the death Marvel. of Captain Marvel. <laughs> You know, a decade before this. So, I mean, is is making him sort of weak and human sort of part of the appeal here? Is that part of why this arc really sticks with? I think people? so. I think so. I, actually, what I would compare it to is the death of Gwen Stacy. Okay. Spider Man's constantly catching people with his web, and they're fine. Mm-hmm. Physics says they're not. Uh, so, for this one moment in Spider Man comics, physics kills Gwen Stacy, <laughs> and Spider Man, because he's in a comic, was right to expect that it wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the genre kind of catches up to him there. I think it's exactly what's happening here. You, you have a character who is constantly chain smoking because chain smokers are cool kids. Yeah. Uh, and, and says, nope, chain smoking gives you cancer. Uh, so by having Constantine subjected to that, to, to punish for something that, that he obviously did, uh, I think completely humanizes him. Exactly what you're yeah, saying. an intrusion of reality exactly. into the world of the supernatural. Yeah, a rupture of the fantasy, which I think is really interesting. And I mean, that's... I mean, Hellboy is constantly rupturing the fantasy, which is one of the things I love most about it. Well, what do we mean by that? What do you mean that Hellboy is constantly rupturing the fantasy? Let's do more on that. That's an interesting well, idea. Well, I think uh, Hellboy's continual narrative is that he is supposed to be part of this great chain that leads to humanity's undoing. And he is defined. He doesn't give a big speech about the value of humanity. He just stands up and like, no, this this isn't what happens. And, <laughs> and usually punches whatever monster yeah. happens to be saying it that day. He yeah. loves punching things. And even more sort of contemporary, he uses a gun <laughs> and yeah. he shoots the yeah. thing. You know, modern technology wins. Although I will of... give a plug that I love the running joke in this particular volume, yes. where his munitions keep. Ex- his tech keeps exploding on him <laughs> because yeah. it's made by the one of the villain lackeys. And then we get the final thing of that same lackey triggering the explosion that kills Rasputin. <laughs> Good rule of three. 
Yes, nicely executed. I, I think in um, Hellblazer, one of the distinctions between the two of them, again, coming back to this idea of ruptures, um, John Constantine actually plays by the rules of the sort of genre that he's in. Yeah. You know, outsmarting the devil, mm -hmm. using a simple trick. Like, that's something you could find in Celtic mythology very yeah. easily. Uh, Hellboy specifically steps outside the fantasy and chooses not to play the traditional hero role. Mm -hmm. He plays a contemporary hero role. Sometimes it works. Usually it works. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it doesn't really work in the sense that these monsters keep coming back and he can't seem to ever punch them into oblivion. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will also argue, though, that they have something in common, that these are both characters who have been told, this is the natural order of things, mm -hmm. this is your place in it, stand in line, yeah. and they both refuse. Which can be and a metaphor escape, for right? how these yeah. comics resist what was comics mainstream at the time, although as we've been discussing, the genre... Or, the medium, rather. Comics are a medium, not a genre, listeners, um, have been getting more diverse during this era. I mean, if these, we talked about some of the things that make Constantine identifiable, that make him human, as it were. Hellboy is not human, and yet, as we mentioned earlier, he's a very human character. Do we identify with Hellboy in these comics? Is he like a point of identification, or is that beside the point? Do we not need that in this comic? Maybe this points a little to where I was trying to flail towards a connection in terms of <laughs> juvenalia that Hellboy is almost an iron giant kind of he's he's yeah. the big guy that a kid is like yeah 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 he seems like an imaginary friend to me yeah, yeah. absolutely he has a superman narrative too in the sense that he's just been raised by oh, humanity and then yeah. becomes attached to them yeah i mean it's true i do feel attached to him as kind of like a tutorial figure or something you know oh, like so this lovely. big like best <laughs> so friend lovely. character who would protect me as a child and that has set, that has a powerful hold, like because I feel very attached to the character of Hellboy, but not as a character. Mm, I mean, I don't feel I don't feel that I have access to his interiority. I don't know. Again, I don't know whether that I think matters. I agree with that. Yeah. Do you think part of that is the way that Hellboy himself is rendered frequently, kind of juvenile, or at least teenager-like yeah. in the way that he thinks and reacts? I mean, it's very it's telling that the that the title is Hellboy, not yeah. Hellman. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he's both he's both juvenile and world weary, right? Yeah, I mean, he's both things at once. Because he, Manolo was very wise to do a time jump that we don't get at least in initially we don't yeah. get all the years in between, but we know that he has been around for a long time. We get at some point the adorable story of Kid Hellboy with his pancakes, yes. and that's what how the devils know that he's going to reject hell because he loves the pancakes the humans have a hold of him anyway adorable but um let's move on so we've kind of danced along the edges of talking about the style of these comics a little bit and they have a very 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 different visual style so it might be an interesting thing to talk about as much as they have certain things in common they look incredibly different so what about Hellblazer? How does the comics forum work for this particular text? How does it work as a comic? How does the comics forum benefit it? What kind of, just describe the style of this comic maybe would be a good starting point for our listeners who might not have read it before. Yeah, it's a tough comparison. Um, trying to put this next to Mignola, who's um, clearly visually and textually an auteur. Um, for me, I think Hellblazer is most easily defined in terms of its visual tactics by its color palette. Okay. Uh, this is a very, very gray, yes. ugly kind of world which that we're depicting. Yellowy. Which is absolutely up yeah. the time. I mean, vertigo gray is the same. Well, yeah, and yeah. I think at the same time, um, that color palette is also very prominently associated with sort of a British style. Mm -hmm. uh, we see it really prominently in things like V for Vendetta, for example. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I think it's, it's, it's operating in that tradition. It's an aesthetic that either works for you or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Though um, thematically, it, it clearly connects to what we're dealing with. As John Constantine is rotting from cancer, it shouldn't look beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think it, again, if nothing else, it's functional. Uh, and then beyond that, I would say because this is such a, a character story, as much as it's based in the occult and the mythological, um, um, Simpson is really good uh, at both um, posture uh, and gesture mm-hmm. uh, in, in selling this sort of emotional journey that, that Constantine is going on. I, I know I'm making that sound a little simplistic, but um, Constantine is a tough character to emote through because he, you know, his default is snarl. Uh, so finding ways, you know, to have, you know, sad snarl and introspective yeah. snarl and all those kind of things. <laughs> yeah. there, there's a whole visual <laughs> vocabulary happening here. And I think Simpson really sells it very well. I mean, for this kind of you know, very character-driven story. We need an artist who can draw a character-driven story. And yeah, exactly. And he succeeds at that. I mean, I, I do love the visual comparison between our first look that we get at Lucifer mm-hmm. and our look that we get out of Gabriel, that these are visually very, like, almost the same character. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one's blonde, one's not. But the idea that, and this reflects great on Constantine's universe, that both the angels and the devils are snobbish assholes. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to take them for all their worth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, it really does use that to, exactly as you're saying, assert the sort of value of humanity as these, these flawed, but in those flaws, noble beings. Do you think that connects to the way uh, we do get visual representation of the other cancer victim in this? I'm thinking particularly the way Matt is depicted as like visibly decaying before us. So Matt is the human cancer patient who's dying in the cancer ward that Constantine thinks about checking into and then right. quickly makes befriends. The fastest mm-hmm. friendship in comics, as yes. one of us said. <laughs> and a great foil character for what mm-hmm. Constantine is going through. I mean, point. it's also a very stereotypical part of cancer narratives in mm-hmm. fiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and visually, I think it, I, I feel like Simpson was kind of playing with that Matt character as a potential red herring a lot, um, mm-hmm. rendering him as... Not just um, decaying, but in some cases very sinister uh, towards the end of his, his presence in this text. So I don't know. I, I feel like there was a little bit of playfulness happening there at the visuals. So yeah, it does create this really good contrast, um, almost like a canary in a coal mine. Uh, so he's literally talking to the fate that awaits him, which is great. And visually taking that away from Constantine, who again is based on Sting, uh, like 1980s beautiful human being Sting. Uh, and you know, Sting is going to become this uh, withered old man. I, I think that adds to the threat because he, you're literally at the narrative level threatening your aesthetic, uh, which is kind of cool. I mean, it's kind of interesting too. I mean, in terms of the way this is interacting with the horror genre, I mean, uh, the things that look horrible aren't necessarily the things that are horrible, and the things that look horrible. Right. Aren't horrible. Although then we get uh, the issue with the demons, or things that are horrible. Are horrible. <laughs> this is true. The most so, horrible things. Sometimes the monster horrible. is just a monster, as we learned from Hellboy. Yeah, yeah of course, that's the central, I mean, visual um, gag in Hellboy. He looks like the worst thing there is, and he's actually he's pretty so good. Cute, yep, he loves I mean, kittens. Another, I think, a really compelling part of uh, Manola's art is that it frequently verges on cartoonish, to, mm-hmm. and that makes it a lot easier to think of. Hellboy is this kind of almost cuddly thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, in Bukidman's book, which I know we're going to get to, but he talks a lot about the stillness of Manola's mm. artwork and the almost statuesque mm. quality of a lot of his figure work, that he's less focused on line as he is on shadows and shapes. 
And it's been hard for me to sort of characterize what I find appealing about Hellboy's world. For, now, uh, full disclosure, I'm a huge Hellboy fan, and, you know, I'm moderating this episode, which, you know. <laughs> I was astonished when I learned that Anna wasn't covering Hellboy on this podcast. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, sort of reading this book maybe kind of realize what's sort of appealing and involving about that world in a way that I hadn't quite been able to articulate before. But what do you kind of make of the style? What do you find appealing about it? I'm sort of curious about your individual um, reactions. I'll admit I, I've gone on and off Hellboy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's interesting that we've discussed before that all three of us, none of us are reading the current BPRD, yeah. that we've all fallen off to some degree. I'm a little more, because of my... I think pure, pure in Scarecrow, uh, literary. I don't have the same comic reading training that you guys have, so I uh, don't I don't follow visually as much. <laughs> and I think, I, at least on a first read of Hellboy, I didn't quite appreciate how much is done visually. That it's a very straightforward narrative, uh, frequently, but in term, I, it's either a very straightforward narrative or it's just drowning you in yeah. occult phrases yeah i mean uh, one of the common techniques he uses which i'd be curious to hear what you both think of it so bukatman calls them pillow panels mm-hmm. i would call them perhaps inside panels um mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he has tiny usually quite small panels that are set on top of the other panels at some point on a page and it's usually some little face or aspect of a character saying some little line sometimes whispering hellboy's name that kind of thing it's not part of the scene necessarily. It could be a reference to another point of time. It could be a memory. It could be the future. We don't know where that panel comes from, where it takes place. Mm-hmm. And this is a technique he uses all the time. And I'm curious, how did you guys read the function of those kind of intrusions, these pillow panels or inset panels think, or whatever we want to call them? I think it fits nicely to do things like a reader like me needs a moment to, okay, slow down a bit, process this. I think it also frequently works towards bringing horror back into this. This isn't always the case, mm-hmm. but it often brings horror back in with a sense of dread. Oh, mm-hmm. is this gonna? Is this something that's gonna happen? Is this mm-hmm. something that has happened? Where does mm-hmm. this fit? Yeah, and I mean, the story is full of ominous warnings. We get the scene of Ghost Rasputin warning Abe about how he's going to die, and which is basically the most memorable thing that Abe does in this comic, other than mm. ride on a jetpack, which is great. And that's kind of a nice, uh, another sort of corresponding theme between our two texts is um, explorations of fatalism. Mm. Mm. This uh, is true. Sort of rejecting your destiny. Well, what do you what do you make of those little inset pillow panels, whatever we're calling them? Um, I think I think they're a really cool creative tool. You could see them as distracting, but but when they're done well, they make mm-hmm. for some really interesting juxtapositions. And even keeping with what Michael was saying, I, I think they take you out of a straight linear narrative and they mm-hmm. they add another piece to it. There's something percolating in the background uh, as your story is unfolding, uh, and if nothing else, that creates an ethos, right? The idea that the writer is way ahead of you. Well, I mean, it's literally multi-layered, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. we have references to the possible past or future layered on top of whatever action scene happens to be happening in the present, which, again, one of the things that people often really praise about Hellboy and BPRD is the richness of that world, right? Mm-hmm. And people get obsessed with reading all these different cues and hints <laughs> that are placed without it, which eventually frustrated me so much that that's part of the reason why I'm not reading it anymore. So, you know, <laughs> it appeals to some people more than others. But yeah, I mean, in terms of that stillness, I mean, do you agree with that characterization of his work? Um, that there's a stillness to it? It's got plenty of action, and yet the this, style itself has kind of a stillness. I, I would just say that I love it. I, I think my favorite memories of Hellboy are always scenes of him just like 
walking quietly through yeah. a graveyard with a skeleton on his back. Yeah, <laughs> I, but I mean, I, even in those action scenes, right, we often mm-hmm. have him just sort of suspended in a black mass of space, and it could be a scene that lasts a second or an eternity. It sort mm-hmm. of encourages both interpretations. Yeah, and the beauty of the art, of course, invites yeah. you to linger and on exactly, it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. One aspect of style that we have not talked about is the fact that both of these characters wear trench coats, which I am desperate <laughs> to talk about the significance of thoughts. What well, does the trench coat represent for both of these characters? It's got to be a noir connection, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is the, our, the overt visual connection back to the occult detective. Yep. It, it is both functional for them. This is what... Hellboy doesn't wear a lot in the way of clothes frequently. Uh, the, the What's he coat. wearing, like bike shorts? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what <laughs> I mean, wears, right? it's a practical way of getting pockets. Mm-hmm. Yep. And with Constantine, it's like, well, you got to put your smoke somewhere. Yeah. So we're, we're getting the um, visual signifiers of this is a hard-boiled hero or anti-hero uh, in Constantine's case. There but is it, actually a Constantine storyline where the coat he has worn the coat so much over the years that it gains sentience. And yeah, starts wandering around. Um, it, it again, so it, it's a way to connect to the noir, but it's also a really good way to you know further symbolize uh, Constantine as a, an iconic British hero. Well, I was going to say with Hellboy's coat too, it's often referred to as a duster coat, which mm. has kind of a Western vibe yeah. as well, and it's also a military coat. It has the BPRD logo when it's not torn to pieces. And I would say there's almost there's kind of an Indiana Jones yeah. thing to right, that. right. Connects him to that adventuring tradition. Yeah, see, it's like through the trench coat, he's connected to sort of every, all of the traditions that are represented in this comic. We could also note the fact that trench coats are kind of an everyday cape kind of aesthetic. It kind of connects them to superheroes in that way. There's been a number of superheroes who wear trench coats instead of capes. My um, favorite Cyclops outfit. Oh, Jessica <laughs> Jones has been known to trench coat it up. Yep. Sometimes, for yeah. Sure. More likely leather coat for her. That's fair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Black Widow. It is, a, and, it is the traditional, uh, I am a monster, I must hang around people. I guess that looks really Oh, well, Invisible Man. That, like, I mean, my memory of trench coats is the Ninja Turtles putting on very fake masks and trying yeah. to stay on well, which, but that's, 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 a, that's a reference to the Invisible Man movie, yeah. which, you know, yeah. the thing also references yep. in Marvel Comics and Nightcrawler as well, getting us back to so, yeah, Comics. The, the trench coat mon- symbolizes the monster in culture. Yeah, and, you know, hiding but not really hiding yeah. among us. Yeah. Um, so just really tangenting to speak to something that connects to our last podcast episode. I have a pet theory that Hellboy is largely based on Ilyana Rasputin. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> so Whoa. Th- their narrative is very similar. Uh, Ilyana also has the devil horns that she hides. She's also mm-hmm. destined to destroy the world. She yeah. comes from a hell dimension uh, where she has untold powers and she struggles with the darkness within they her. both have connections to Rasputin. Both have connections to Rasputin, canonically, and the cover artist of that issue of X-Men on its first reprint in classic X-Men was Mike Mignola. Six years, I think it was, before he created Hope. I would love if what Ileana transforms into when she goes into her demon form were a version of Hellboy rather than just like a sexy demon aged up, uh, you know, with a short skirt and a tail poking at the back. (laughs) So that is my conspiracy theory to connect our podcasts. Thank you for that. You're welcome. (laughs) 
So let's go in a little bit of a different direction and talk about some of the interpersonal relationships in these comics. So Hellboy's got a team, obviously. Constantine has a kind of team, or at least several associates that he interacts <laughs> with throughout this arc, because he's saying goodbye to various people mm-hmm. and, you know, touching base with various people who he hopes will help him, but don't ultimately help him. But how would you characterize Andrew Constantine's relationship with these other people in his life? Do they function like a team? Are they important to the story? Like, why are they here? I think that they're almost there exclusively for character work. Uh, As I said, we've got a ton of foils. But from a dynamic perspective, um, the idea is he has these people in his world that he loves, but he's hurt. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they're always kind of manifesting his guilt at the same time as they're Mm -hmm. establishing his humanity. Um, so I think that's another way that we sort of um, get to see John Constantine as a more human character as much as he's kind of an exceptionally bad mm-hmm. human being. Um, so I think they're, they're, they're fleshing out, again, the character story that Ennis is trying to tell. And they have a very kind of conventional, in my opinion, um, like, like literary function of character. I would almost say, for me, they underscored the point that how alone he is. Yeah. He does not have equals in right. the story. He has people that he maybe was on an equal level with once. These are not his equals now. His fam- his, the people in his life who don't have anything to do with magic are not his equals. And the people he interacts with that are magical are like so much overpowered compared to him that there's no comparison either. Yeah, I think there's kind of a logic there where Constantine is supposed to get points just for caring about people mm-hmm. without treating them well. Uh, and there are some ways in which I have a problem with that, but of course that's that's who the character is, right? Yeah, or, it, it kind it fits with his version of antihero. At least. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It occurs to me that you could read this comic as, and I mean, this might be the intent of the comic that is all through his perspective, and so we don't get any interiority of any of the other characters because this is his vision of them, and because he's a selfish prick, like he doesn't see them as full people. I mean, I feel like that's almost the kind of tone of the interactions. I mean, the scene with his his sister, I believe, in particular, mm-hmm. where, you know, she's just there. I mean, she doesn't really have any interiority whatsoever. That's just him talking at her in that scene. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know. Like it's, it's consistent with the genre. Yeah. It's something that happens a lot. And she's an outsider to the natural world. One thing that is kind of interesting is that these are all... I mean, I think there are some characters who are just brought in essentially to show up and never be seen again. His sister, uh, Chaz, these are part of his very long-form cast. Mm. Yeah, and Kit is going to become important um, later on as well. And that's part of sort of establishing the audience for a serial comic like this, right? To have these yeah, recurring it characters does have, popping in and out. It does have at least references to other parts. I think it's very telling that uh, when it comes to actually being treated for cancer, he immediately rejects it because uh, he doesn't... In, the story reason is that he has demon blood that would uh, bring <laughs> put him under scrutiny, which is a canon thing that happened to him, mm-hmm. but also that... It's very much Constantine. He is not putting himself. Oh, he's under way too control. cool to be yeah. treated for cancer. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe part of the problematic anti-heroness of this character. He's one of these characters who won't show up to pick you up when you need a ride somewhere, but he'll risk his eternal soul to oh, save yours. That's and again, that that's such a noir trope. Yeah. I don't know. In some ways, it makes them lovable, but I think from a more contemporary audience's perspective, it's it's probably considered more of a and there are also case, and he'd also like wager your soul. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if he needed to in a minute, because you know he's going to give it back. Yeah, um, uh, people seem to be largely um, objects to him uh, along his path. 
Uh, and again, that that's totally characteristic of who he is. So I'm not saying it as a, a fault of the narrative, yeah, but, but yeah, certainly yeah. a fault of the character, right? It enforces his character. So, I mean, again, differences between characters and the author. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What do you make of the female demon character that shows up? Um, because she is, I feel like she's been treated differently than the other supernatural characters. I don't know. To be honest, I didn't have a read on that. What were you thinking? Um, I think maybe this is just me, like, reflecting from reading a lot of the series and having it all like flow together that she is the if we are talking noir tropes she is the fallen woman that you treat nicely (laughs) literally fallen in a sense (laughs) okay and because of that relationship she gets to be a little more she gets to feel like a little more of a sympathetic character than all of the other supernatural beings yeah so do you think it plays into sort of the um um the gentleman jerk yeah absolute character aspect okay. yeah because he is gallant at times yeah there i definitely saw through that scene i was supposed to like him sort of based on how he treats her like you know, not as an equal necessarily, but sort of. You know, they have kind mm-hmm. of a playful flirtatiousness, but like he's not totally skeevy with her, which sort yes. of you could, you could totally see a storyline where she uh, like abandons the devil for him and then dies heroically. Yeah, that's right. true. Which you know, I, I don't, don't know, know if that he's... happens. I feel like that's something that happens to people like like uh, Constantine <laughs> a lot. We can write it in fan fiction. Well, let's talk about Hellboy and his team then. So we both, Liz and Abe, so Liz Sherman, the Firestarter, and Abe Sapien, the Fishman. <laughs> Synopsis of who these people are at this point in this narrative, basically. And they are wonderful characters. They do not get a lot to do in this particular story. Yeah, I mean, why are they present in this story? Do you think it's sort of, does it serve a purpose? Are they just here because they exist in this universe? I mean... Um, I think, I mean, I, I hate, almost hate saying this because I know how great characters they are elsewhere, but I think here uh, they kind of fulfill two roles that at the very beginning scene with everyone together, they reinforce Hellboy's humanity, that he gets to do some banter with all of them. Right. They also uh, reinforce the fact that he is unique but not unique, that there are other like people who have powers who are on the, the side, his side, and that also humanizes him to an extent. I mean, I wonder about the Abe Sapien character in particular, about sort of like the incongruousness of him. He's this guy who's a fish guy, but that's not really an important aspect of his character. It's just, he's a fish guy. Whereas, you know, Hellboy's just <laughs> a devil guy, but he could also just be an occult detective like Constantine, mm-hmm. although it's part of his story and everything in terms of how he interacts with the world and stuff. It's not well, really it, essential. Well, it does tie a little to the Lovecraftian underpinnings, mm-hmm. of, especially yeah. when you get to fish people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, this all continues and it's part of the big story. Yeah, but yeah. But yeah, in terms of this, I, I think the most important part of Abe in that respect is that he's monstrous looking mm-hmm. and that he reinforces that people can... That there are other people like Hellboy who look monstrous but are not. From I mean, it's first... telling that Liz is not monstrous. This is true, which I female characters often don't get to be monstrous in the same ways that male characters get to be monstrous, which is why I said it would be fabulous if Ileana did become Hellboy. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I just from the first time that I read Hellboy and BPOD, I thought Abe was hilarious the way again he's just this like ultra tough fish guy who just like shoots things, and if is if anything is even less talk than Hellboy and yeah. like less ironic and he's just a straight up shooty ultra violent masculine guy who happens to be a fish dude and he has so much like Hellboy mystery surrounding mm-hmm. him and where he came from but he I, seems so almost unfazed by it at times yeah. at least at this point in, in the Hellboy stories well, I, again I kind of hate to say this because I like Hellboy and B, the BPRD part of Hellboy so much 
But even here, you feel like from the beginning, Manola has this distance between him and the actual Bureau that he mm. keeps exploiting to the point where they haven't, other than the spinoff series, they haven't interacted in years. Yeah. I mean, for me, I often wonder whether it's sort of a weakness of Hellboy that the character work isn't as good as it could be in terms of this team that's very interesting does get introduced, but it's not... I don't think there's really a Hellboy comic in which the team aspect is done particularly well. Mm -hmm. I really Mm -hmm. like many arcs of VPRD a lot, but in terms of the Hellboy comics, I don't know. There's a... In the the Catman book, uh, he at one point quotes Manola saying that uh, he's thought about doing other work, but then comes around to, oh, why don't I just put this in the Hellboy universe? Mm -hmm. And a lot of BPRD, at least at this stage, kind of feels like, well, why don't I just put this in the Hellboy universe? Mm-hmm. And I can pick it up as a piece later if I feel like it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt to me in sort of the first Hellboy comics, he introduces the team just because he thinks they're neat ideas, but they don't really go anywhere or do anything. And again, just coming back to Abe, he's creature from the Black Lagoon with a gun. It's hilarious. Like, yeah. I just... Yeah. I just, it's not unhilarious. Like, I'm never going to stop smiling about that. Well, there's that the sort of um, question of pointlessness in let's split up into three teams yeah. and go to three castles. And is anyone thinking that Hellboy isn't going to be the one who finds yeah. the, the right castle? Right? I and mean, then, like, if this was a superhero story, yeah, you'd have three teams. Each one of them would have a main minor face-off. Yeah. And it would build to a big confrontation at the end. And it doesn't do that. But again, I wonder if that like sort of gets us back to that question of stillness in Hellboy mm-hmm. and the way it's got so much action and yet the action is rendered in this very still way. You know, it's this team comic with like three people who have really cool superpowers and like we don't get to see them do anything. Mm-hmm. It just frustrates <laughs> that desire. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, Abe's this fish guy. We don't see him doing any underwater fish stuff. We see him on a jetpack. I mean, it's just so frustrating. And Liz is like a fire starter who can do all of these amazing things. She does get this scene where she resurrects the homunculus roger which will become relevant in later issues but it's not really relevant to this particular comic and again yeah i just wonder whether that's sort of intentional sort of frustrating our desire to like see these things or whether it's just bad writing i think that kind of speaks to almost like an idea of anti-climax that's really important to hellboy's characters yeah and that's how this story that's what i'm getting at that's literally how the story concludes right he doesn't have a confrontation with rasputin Rasputin accidentally blows himself up. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in that sense, maybe, like, yeah, these sort of false starts of the Liz and Abe storylines do make sense. Yeah. And they, they fit the tone and the, and the theme of that comic. Maybe it isn't bad writing after all. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry well, I mean, Mike. It, it is we also very it. early in Manila's writing. <laughs> That's true. And now we are going to have our academic book review for this week, which is going to be Scott Bukatman's book, Hellboy's World, Comics and Monsters on the Margin. And Michael is going to give us that. Take it away, Michael. Thank you. As the title would suggest, this book is an examination of Hellboy and an examination of Mike Manola as a creator. However, it may be more accurate to think of this not so much as a book that uses Hellboy as its subject, but a book that uses it as its ground, as a framework for larger discussions about comics their potential, and their connection to other media and tradition. Each of the book's five chapters and short intro and coda pursue this idea in different ways, without ever completely abandoning its devil-shaped protagonist. The first chapter looks at Manola's approach to world-building, how Manola draws on different mythologies and different creators to build something that is still uniquely his, contrasting this with more massive worlds like superhero multi-universes 
as well as contrasting Manola's black and bulky style with creators like Frank Miller and Karl Barks. Um, as a quick aside, I've taught a lot of courses on Harry Potter. I'd argue J.K. Rowling does something similar with blending mythology, but Manola goes in a different direction that is almost more interesting, that he strings together these episodic narratives into a bigger whole, into an approach that's similar to television such as Supernatural or Once Upon a Time, but I would argue with greater aesthetic consistency. The second chapter digs into Hellboy's overlapping subgenres, Lovecraftian horror and occult detective, which serves as a space for discussing comic books' potential for the sublime and narratives of beings who reject their destiny, in case you were wondering what Hellboy has in common with Pinocchio. The book begins with a quotation from Walter Benjamin on the transformative potential of reading for children, and Bacatman extends this to the transformative power of reading comics. The comparison uh, between children's books and comics rises again in chapter 3 through his discussion of color in comics and children's books, saying that makes both forms carnivalesque and somehow improper in, formed, uh, in terms of higher literature. In terms of Hellboy, uh, this line of discussion allows Bukatman to discuss Manola's collaborator and longtime colorist Dave Stewart. I have to admit, even as someone who often overlooks this kind of detail, the coloring is striking in Wake the Devil, that Hellboy's redness stands in contrast to the pale gray of the castle and the deep green of the lamina. Uh, chapter 4 looks at interconnectedness in the series, the way its references and absences call on the reader to act, to respond to the physicality of the text. His comparison here is with uh, codicology and materiality of comics, but in what I promise is my last aggression, uh, it drew my mind to how much Hellboy resembles a video game, that it frequently calls on players to fill in narrative gaps and involves physical control of a character to move throughout a world that uh, physicality and gap is also a, such a founding feature. Finally, in this last chapter, Bacatman makes an argument I'm still trying to process, that Hellboy shares something with the sculptural and its emphasis on stillness and stasis. So many definitions of comics emphasize their sequence, their movement, that it feels almost subversive to say that this is a strength of the series. And yet it's entirely in line with the book overall, that it is considering the transgressive nature of Hellboy and of comics in general. Uh, Buchanan states at the introduction of the book that it really isn't about the narrative or story of Hellboy, because such a discussion would be tedious for those who aren't already on board with the whole Hellboy thing. That's a quote. And yet I'm not sure if there is an audience for the book if it's not that group of people. Uh, the overall discussion is worth it for anyone who's interested in comics, or maybe even pop culture in general, but I'm not sure that those levels work without Hellboy holding them up as a sort of atlas supporting the book's weight on its shoulders. Okay, that's, that was one technically last digression, but highfalutin illusions don't count. Uh, I will say I really enjoyed reading it, that I've never seen such a high level of reproduction when it comes to comic book pages in an academic work. Um, I've also read other books by Buchanan, including Terminal Identity and Matters of Gravity, and Hellboy's world feels much more accessible and unified than those texts, if perhaps not quite striving to say as much. Mostly it left me wanting to see more books like this, books that take a series and creator as their center and follows where that idea may lead. And if, like Hellboy, the ideas wind up being rebellious monsters, that's not a bad thing.
So that pretty much wraps things up today, other than we've started to make this a regular segment of doing some recommendations. Um, I'll plug a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to plug previous editions of the pod, which you should definitely check out. If you liked today's discussion about Hellblazer and Hellboy, I would especially recommend our two regular American vampire discussion, which I think dovetails quite nicely. We've also got discussions about Batgirl and Ms. Marvel, New Mutants and Young Avengers, among other episodes. Um, I would also specifically, in reference to this episode, like to plug the comic book Abe Sapien The Drowning, which is the first Abe Sapien solo series. Um, it's by Mike Wignola, John Arcudi, Scott Alley, with art by Jason Sean Alexander. It's from 2004. I have such a fond memory of reading this comic book in an August when it was raining and I'd quit my office job and was going back to grad school in September. So it was a very happy month in my life. So my opinion of this comic might be a bit colored by that context, but I have reread it in the intervening years and I think it holds up. That's my rec. Uh, I would like to recommend Atomic Robo by Brian Clevenger and Scott Wegner. Uh, this is very, very clearly a book that takes Hellboy as its inspiration, but in instead of the source being uh, sort of satanic and Lovecraftian, it is instead uh, super science that Atomic Robo was originally made by Nikola Tesla. Uh, he survives throughout the centuries and has things like uh, adventures with various other scientists. Uh, I'm going to use this as a seating moment. There's a wonderful point in the series starring Carl Sagan where he basically goes, when you get back to your hell dimension, tell them Carl Sagan sent you, which is which is wonderful. <laughs> what about you, Andrew? I would actually like to recommend The Max by Sam Keith, which has some interesting correspondence in terms of the um, visual artistry of Mignola. There's a, a pretty clear uh, similarity there. Uh, and more importantly, he's a, an iconic and a brilliant anti-hero, uh, which gives us a nice connection to John Constantine, although in a very, very different way. The Max is perfectly kind and lovely. Uh, he's just um, incapable, largely because he's depressed. Really wonderful book. Uh, I've spent most of my teaching career forcing students to read it <laughs> in order to keep its memory alive. I'm sure they ultimately thank you for it, though. Anyway, that's all for us today. Thank you guys so much for listening.